Open your Bibles, please, if you brought them. First letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. We're looking at chapter 7 this morning. Chapter 7. How many have actually read ahead, read chapter 7? You know where we're going, right? It really helps a lot. And this chapter is a really good case in point of where it helps to read ahead. Uh, we're in chapter 7 this morning, so next Sunday you would be reading... Just to, just to keep you up to speed, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, this is a portion of the letter that has caused, oh, a whole lot of discussion and debate and argument and questions. There's a whole lot of stuff uh, in this chapter. A lot of questions, a lot of questions about the way Paul says things and what Paul says. Our intent this morning is not going to be to answer all those questions because we could be here all day long and at the end of the day, we would still have most of those same questions still you know, things to be said about them. What we are going to try to do, what I'm going to try to do this morning, is get to the main point of the chapter, because it is, it is a unit. It all is about one thing. We're going to try to identify that point and then set it in the larger purpose of Paul's letter. So we're just going to get started uh, reading the first verse. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, beginning in the first verse. Now concerning the things you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of the immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. And as we come to this passage, Father, with its challenges and things that are clear to understand, but maybe hard to accept, and then things that are hard to understand, we ask that your spirit would guide all that, we, all that is said and what is heard that your truth would penetrate into our heart, Father, because that's what we need this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So once again, Paul, as he's done before in this letter, he starts out on a point that is important and it is relevant, but it isn't the main point. But he segues from that to the main point. Um, the apostle raises a concern about relations in marriage, and it's something that's rooted in a very unique situation in Corinth. We've talked about that before, and then that will, of course, connect to the bigger issue. Uh, and then from the bigger issue, he goes back to Corinth. Now, I don't know about you, but you probably maybe have asked yourself, why does God do this? Why does he give us his plan for our lives in such a, shall we say, convoluted nature as I mean, we start out with, you know, the biographies about Jesus, basically. They're not technically biographies, but the Gospels are like biographies. And then you have all these letters, which are highly situational, which are connected to specific situations in a specific time, in a specific place, and then we have to figure out how to transition that into our world. And then he ends up with, you know, the apocalypse, which leaves us all scratching our heads, right? Why doesn't he just, like, lay it out simply? Why doesn't God just say, look, this is how you're supposed to do it. How many have thought that? Guess what? He did that once. 
called Moses up the mountain, said, here it is, this is all you have to do, and before Moses got off the mountain, the wheels had already fallen off. Right? So it's not like that was failure. We're not like criticizing the text of the Old Testament. What we are saying is we really should appreciate the way the New Testament is given to us, even though it's a challenge sometimes, because what we've got is God speaking into lives. Yeah, sometimes it was really messy. Corinth was a mess. They had a messed up worldview. They had messed up doctrine. They had messed up lives. And God spoke into that. Aren't you glad? I'm glad. I'm glad God was able to take all the confusion and all the problems and all the stuff going on in Corinth and speak his truth into it, right? It does mean we have to work a little bit harder to figure out how it impacts our life, but still it's there, and I really appreciate that, right? So the New Testament was transmitted in a way that speaks into life, and it's all for our benefit. God's word into the uniqueness of all these different situations even the messy ones. So this morning, what we want to do with this particular one uh, is take a quick overview. It's a long chapter. It's one of the chapters in the book. We're going to take a quick overview of the chapter and then try to identify the real key passages, the ones that are making the key points that Paul needs to make, and then finally see how they fit into his main message and then speak into our lives. So a quick overview. Uh, it starts, and this is really, really important for our understanding, with this expression, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And if you've been with us several Sundays, we've already talked about what that meant. Paul had received communication from them with various questions, with various concerns, with various complaints, and he's writing back. So we have Paul's answers, but not their questions. We have to kind of cipher that out in order to move through it. And he uses this expression, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's kind of a euphemistic expression. What's he saying? He's saying it's good for married people not to have sex. What? What he says. Now the question is, we've already talked about this, when you see a phrase like that, what should you be asking? Are these Paul's words or are they the Corinthians' words? And by virtually every study that I know of of the Corinthian letters, these are not Paul's words. What Paul is saying is, Yes, indeed, as you have written me, it is good that for a period of time, even in a marriage, people not have sex. But, and what Paul is using is classic rabbinical argumentation, where somebody says something, and you don't just go, no, you're wrong. You go, okay, well, that may be true under certain circumstances, but have you considered, you know, the other side of the question. Even if, you look how Jesus responded to the Pharisees. Very seldom did he ever say, you guys are just wrong. No, he'd say, have you not read? He you know, tacitly agreed with what they said, in part, but then say, however, if you consider this, you'll see how wrong you really are. Right? So that's an expression coming out of the Corinthian church. And I say, well, why would the Corinthians say anything like that? That's kind of nutty, right? We've talked a lot about the dualism in the Corinthian church. They were buying into that whole thing that spirit is good and flesh is bad. And how for some people, that meant, well, if spirit is good and flesh is bad, I can do whatever I want to with my flesh. It doesn't matter. And they went off into nutty sin, right? Other people took that same way of thinking and said, well, if that's true, that spirit is good and flesh is bad, I want to put the flesh as far away as I can. And they went just the opposite direction. 
They got caught up in this very ascetic kind of living where they didn't involve themselves in anything that was enjoyable. Both of those groups, and we're talking about a church that was deeply divided, and you can see how those two groups probably wouldn't get along too well. They might have problems. You've got one group going, eh, let's go have fun, you know, because it doesn't matter. And another group going, no, don't have any fun. They're not going to get along. That's part of the division in the church. So Paul is just, just jumping right in to this argument, and he's saying, well, you know, you guys might be right, but because of immorality, it's better that you not push that too hard. Don't go so far with that. Now, in verses 2 through 16, again, we're just taking a broad overview. In verses 2 through 16, Paul speaks to this larger issue of marriage, right? He grants to one group that, yes, even in marriage, uh, celibacy may have its advantages, but let's not make it the norm, people. It's kind of weird. Um, second of all, we should note, all of us should note the condition that we're in, wherever we are in the spectrum of human experience, as a gift from God, because God has placed us in that situation, and he uses some pretty extreme examples, as a gift. And finally, in all of that, he affirms the value and the sanctity of marriage and family. Those things are absolutes, right? So that's the first part of the chapter. He deals with that larger question of marriage, some of the wacky ideas people had, and it's like, well, I can see where you're coming from, but don't make a habit of it, because it just runs contrary to human nature. Paul notes that we have to, as a practical matter, accommodate human nature. Without it, you know, things get bad. Verse 17 kind of stands alone. It's transitional. He said, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, let him in this manner walking. And this I direct in all the churches, right? Um, Paul is pointing out something he's going to loop back to later in. Sorry, I shouldn't use that phrase. hate that phrase. He's going to come back to that later. All right, But he has to establish it here because it's part of the main point that he's going to make. And the point is this. Wherever we are in the walk of life, that is a gift of God. And our focus should always be in serving God in the place we're at rather than changing the status of our lives. He's going to come back to that in a little more detail. Uh, in verses 18 through 24, Paul turns to the issues of circumcision and slavery. He's applying what he said back in verse 17. And what's interesting is that Paul doesn't address either one directly, circumcision or slavery. Now, we know a lot of people have a huge problem with the fact that the New Testament never spoke directly to slavery. The New Testament never went directly at slavery saying it is wrong. And some people have gone so far as to suggest the New Testament writers approved of slavery. They most certainly did not. But what did Paul just say? Don't make your focus in changing your status in life. Make your focus serving God in whatever state you're in. That's the priority. Serving God in whatever state you're in. So even so great an abolitionist, as Wilberforce would say, when challenged with using his voice, to change the world, responded by saying, I'd rather change myself. So whatever status we're in, Paul says, let your greatest focus be serving God in the, in the state you're in. The secondary issues of life, things like circumcision and slavery, as important as they are, aren't the main issue. Right? Paul would never let the gospel be distracted from its greater purpose, redeeming 
the human heart. Verses um, 25 through 28, Paul returns to the question of marriage. He both affirms it and discourages it. He specifies, however, that his concerns are, sit are situational. And again, I'm going through this quickly. If you haven't read the chapter, you're gonna, I strongly suggest you go back and read it. Verse 29 through 31 is where Paul expresses the key thought of the chapter. So we're going to kind of set that aside for now and come back to it. Verses 32 through 40, he returns to the questions about marriage. So out of all this, he's talking about marriage, he's talking about circumcision, he's talking about slavery, he's talking about honoring marriage and at the same time saying things that look like maybe marriage isn't the best. What's the point? What point is Paul really trying to make? And that's where we come to verses 29 to 30, right? He's, he just got done saying in verse 28, but if you should marry, he's saying you shouldn't marry, but if you should marry, you haven't sinned. Uh, and if a young woman should marry, she has not sinned, but such will have trouble in this life that I'm trying to spare you. Paul is saying, keep your perspective and priorities on kingdom things. And then he says this. You know, let, let's be honest before we even read it. We read the values that the New Testament speaks to us, and then we walk out in the world and try to live them and sometimes it feels like they, they just don't line up, right? Everything, everything I'm, encounter, I'm encountering during my day tells me I should be living a different set of values, and it's speaking, the world's speaking really loud, right? That I should be living a different set of values. You know, that, that character you deal with maybe at work who's always cutting corners, who's always, you know, pushing to the head of the line, whatever, and, and not only seems to get away with it, but seems to prosper with it, right? Like, it's just not working, right? Whatever, whatever it might be that you deal with, the world speaks really loudly about its values, its methods, right? But in verse 29, Jesus or Paul says this, Now this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who had wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not, do not weep, and those who rejoice as though they do not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. Does any of that make any sense? I'm okay, if you're married, that's great, but don't take advantage of it. Don't enjoy any of the benefits of marriage. Oh, that makes sense, right? If, if you have a reason to, to sorrow, if you have a reason to weep, don't weep. Get over it. If you have a reason to rejoice, don't rejoice. If things are going great, well, you know, if, you can't, if, if the situation's not making you unhappy, make yourself unhappy, right? Nothing in that makes sense, right? Until the last phrase. Until the very last phrase. And that explains everything, right? Paul says, the form of this world is passing away. Without that single phrase, the form of this world is passing away, nothing in this entire chapter makes any sense. Not to me. Tell me that, yes, you're married, but you can't enjoy the benefits of marriage. Makes no sense. Right? If you're having a bad day, just get over it. Makes no sense. If you're having a great day, don't get too happy about it. Makes sense. No sense. And if, if you're prospering financial and financially and you have the opportunity to enjoy some of that, don't do it. 
makes no sense. It actually draws a picture of at least the Apostle Paul, if not God himself, as some kind of a spoil sport. It's the nicest word I can come up with. I could come up with other words, but because I'm talking about God, I won't. It doesn't paint Paul or God in a very good light, does it? Until you realize what this single phrase means for the form of this world is passing away. I want to look at each word in that phrase because it is absolutely incredible. And some of this just might blow your mind. The form of this world. The word that is used for form. And some of you that are maybe involved in the mechanical trades or engineering may recognize this word. Is the word schema. Schema comes into English as schematic, right? We all know what a schematic diagram is, you know. Maybe if you can't read one, you would at least recognize it. It's that thing in the back of a car manual. You fold it out, and it's got this crazy, it's the, it's the electrical schematic, right? Do they still put those in car manuals? I don't know. They used to. They used to. Okay, they don't anymore. None of us can read them, right? Right, now they just give you a phone number to call somebody, yeah. Um, but they used to have these diagrams, and they, and they exist, they're just not in the owner's manual, that show you how everything in the wiring diagram worked. All the electrical systems worked, right? Now, was it an exact picture? No, not like they opened up the hood and went, and gave you, no, right? But they gave, you couldn't see under the hood, but you can see the diagram, right? Because if you understand that drawing, you can understand the electrical system. By looking at what your eyes tell you, you can understand this system that you otherwise can't see. Now, um, everywhere I went when I, was, when I was in the military, because I was in the engineering department, as soon as you show up, they handed you some blank paper. It was my job to go through, for example, when I was on the sedge, go bow to stern and make a drawing of every single system. Right? Because they knew that if I could draw the system, I would understand the system. That was the first thing you did. You didn't get off the boat till you finished those drawings, by the way. So there's a lot of motivation there, right? Those drawings, those schematics, made sure you understood the system. You were applying your senses. You would look at where the lines went, put your hands on the lines if you had. You would apply all your senses to understand the system and create this drawing out of it. And that's what that word schema means. It means to use the senses to understand the essential nature of something. To use all of your senses externally, looking at the material reality of something to understand its essential nature. How's that gonna work in Corinth? Not so well, because we talked about Corinth being in the embrace of this dualistic thinking, that, you know, that body is one thing and spirit is way over here or mind or something else is way over here and one is bad and the other is really good and the two don't meet. The idea that you could look at something externally and come to understand its essence isn't going to fly too well. Now, by the way, which, where's our culture at on that idea? Right? How many have read the incredible book, The Little Prince? I won't try to pronounce the author's name. It's a French name. I won't do that to it, right? What's the key phrase in that book? That which is essential is invisible to the eye. The classic expression of the kind of Greek philosophy that Corinth was all about. This dualism, this dichotomy between that which is physical and that which is not. Right? This word eliminates that kind of thinking. 
This word says that you can, by careful observation of the external, come to understand the internal. There's no dichotomy there. There's no separation. Compare this, if you will, to another word that's frequently used in the, it's much more common, this word's only used twice, and that is the word morph, right? right? From which we get our English word metamorphosis, right? And the minute you use that word, what picture comes to everybody's mind? The caterpillar and the butterfly, right? Okay? And the caterpillar metamorphoses, if that's a word, I'm not sure, metamorphoses into a butterfly. Now, how many of us have said to our children, the caterpillar changes into a butterfly? How many of us have said that? When you see your child, apologize to them because you lied. It didn't. The caterpillar did not change. Only its external form changed. The DNA of that particular creature remained unchanged through the entire process. It didn't change. Only its outward form did. It morphed. But if you looked at both forms, the caterpillar and the butterfly, you could understand the unseen essence, that schema. Looking at a complete picture of the outside to understand that which is inside, right? Schema says you can understand invisible essence by a careful examination of the external, which is exactly what John said in his first, in his first letter. First John chapter 1 begins this way. Most of us know it, but I wonder if you ever thought about it as a direct refutation of Greek philosophy, because that's what it is. John writes, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we looked at, touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified to you and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ. John is saying, look, we hung around with the guy for three years. We talked with him, ate with him, did all the stuff he did, watched all he did, rubbed elbows with him, and because of that, we came to understand what his essential person was. We observed on the outside, finally came to understand who he was on the inside. That's what schema is. That word means to observe the outside, come to understand the essence on the inside. Now, it's only used one other place in, the, in, in Scripture, and that's over in Philippians chapter 8. And this is the passage that blew my mind. It's a passage I think we've all heard so many times. Paul writes to the Philippian believers of Christ, and being found in fashion as a man. That's where that word schema appears. Being found in the schema of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. The fashion of the form, schema. Being found in the schematic, if you will, of a man, right? Here's the wild part about that. And this is kind of um, extraneous to this passage, but, but it's not. When it says he was found in the schema, the form of a man, external conforming with internal, it speaks of the process of our discovery being found in the past tense. That makes sense. He's talking about something that happened in the past. 
Jesus was incarnate, walked among them, and so he says, being found, past tense. In the fashion or form of a man, he speaks in a sense that was present at that time, which is to say continuous. And the grammar strongly suggests that Jesus was already in human schema before he was incarnate. The idea that Jesus was fully divine in heaven and when the day came for him to be born, stepped into disguise as a man, like God traveling around humanity incognito as a human being, is not supported. Fully human as he was fully divine before the incarnation. Jesus has always been human. Which is really good news, isn't it? Because number one, it makes a whole lot of sense out of what Genesis says. We're created in his image, right? Well, what did God have to work with? Jesus. Right there. Fully human. It also strengthens. When I shared this with, with Pastor Joyce, I said, you know, I just, I just saw this. I just saw this. That um, Jesus was fully human even before he was incarnate. She just began to weep. Like, oh, my reaction wasn't that strong. I said, what, 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 what do you get? And she said, it shows us the basis of his love for us. He, and, he indeed loves us as his own children because when he looks at us, he sees, his, he sees our older brother, right? Okay. Lost my notes. You have to wing it, right? So Paul, writing in the Corinthian church, said the form of this world, cosmos, have I talked about cosmos before? I lose track of what it is. Cosmos comes in English as yeah, cosmic. I know, but that doesn't tell us anything, right? In, most, it, in terms of a practical application, cosmos comes into English as what? Anybody got it? It's that part of the department store that, and I'm going to make a sexist comment here. I own it. As you walk in the store, the ladies all go, boom. Cosmetic. Cosmetics. Now you ask yourself, what does makeup have to do with the cosmos, right? My mom used to have an expression that, oh, always wigged me out. It always freaked me out. We were going to be leaving the house, and she would say, I can't go until I put my face on. I'd say, Mom, it's right there. It's on the front of your head. You don't even know it. No. What, what did she mean when she said, I want to put my face on? Put her makeup on. But why? What was she really talking about? It's a bigger picture than that. Okay, I'm going to really get myself in trouble here now. But how many of you have a mirror by your front door? Now, how many guys are going, I don't know. You don't even know if you have a mirror by your front door because you never look in it, right? But, ladies, as you walk out your front door, it's the last thing you do. Now, again, I'm generalizing. I know I'm labeling myself, you know, but that's okay, right? We used to joke in the kitchen. We used to have meetings every Wednesday night of all the cafe crew. And, and the joke got started, Chris, you don't remember this, how Victoria had this ability to detect the sound of a mirror being cleaned. And she would immediately seek that clean mirror out. Like, oh, am I all together, right? 
There's something about the makeup of some people. I will step away from the generalizations. There is something about the makeup of, of, of all of us in one way or another. That's the thing. We're all this way. Am I put together? Am I properly ordered? And that's what cosmos means. Order. Before we walk out of the house, we order ourselves in whatever fashion, male and female alike. We order ourselves. We want to step out into our day with everything in order. Right? So when Paul says the order is passing away, what's he saying? All the realities of this world are on their way out the door. Now, when Peter talks about that, Peter talks about um, the heavens themselves being consumed with intense heat, the elements themselves melt, melting away. That's pretty easy to grasp. He's talking about everything going up in smoke, but that's in the future. Paul here and John in John's epistle talk about it, same terminology, this world is passing away. It's already happening. It's already happening that the order by which business is done in this world order is passing away. What could that mean? What does that mean? Now, it's not like just, you know, like global warming and seas rising, because it was talking about it in the first century. As far as I know, nobody traces global warming to the first century. Right? So they're already talking about it in the first century. The world is passing away. You know what he's talking about? The Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Does that make any sense? Well, not in this world order, no. It's a different order. Right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake. That make any sense? Not in this world order. It's a new way of doing business. It's a new system, a new schematic, if you will. And so everything in this chapter, Paul is saying what? Get the new schematic. And if it changes the way you look at marriage, it'll change the way you look at marriage. If it changes the way you look at your business, it'll change the way you look at your business. It should change the way we look at everything. Get the new schematic. And that's great. Because when I don't react the way I used to react to a given situation, and I don't react out of that same old carnal self, I react differently, and I find myself going, where did that come from? And I hear the voice of the Lord saying, you're not wired that way anymore, son. That diagram is not accurate anymore. You got a new one. Or at least we're in the process of giving you a new one, right? Everything has to be done according to new diagrams, new understandings of how things should happen. None of what he... Go back and read the Beatitudes, chapter 5 in Matthew's Gospel. None of it lines up with this world, but it all lines up with a new one. See, we have to get that perspective. We have to get that perspective. And this is why Paul says the extraordinary things in this chapter that he does. He's perceived from the outside what the new order looks like on the inside. And he has a perception of a new order, a new kingdom, and it motivates him and it drives him. See, that ultimately what we're after. We're after a new set of motives. That in all of my relationships, I would be motivated not by the things that used to motivate me and my carnal self, which are reinforced by the world in which we live, but a new set of motives that come about by seeing his kingdom. Paul's not saying, you know, I don't want you to enjoy life. 
Paul's not saying, yeah, being spiritual means being miserable. No, none of that's true. That's not true. What is true is that seeing what directions things are going in, I need to ask myself, so much of this chapter is Paul making recommendations. Paul's saying, this isn't the Lord, this is me. I'm trying to give you some good advice. You know, that sounds kind of weird to us, right? Because we want it to be Moses on the mountain, do it, don't do it, right? Paul's saying, no, I've got some good judgment here. This is how you should do things, based on my judgment. What is that? That is Paul saying, I have seen what the future looks like. It's a whole new way of doing business, and I want you to invest your lives wisely. That's all this is. Paul's saying, look at the way things are going to be and invest yourself accordingly. It's really no different, it's really no different than, um, you know, you go to a, a financial advisor and you say, I've got all this, I want to invest, right? Um, and what's the first thing they say? Don't go to Vegas or Hawaii and blow it all, right? But what else do they say? If you want to go there with a little bit of it and enjoy it, that's fine. But invest the rest wisely. Nowhere in the text are we called to be monks, right? But maybe a little bit of the monastic perspective, I know I'm getting kind of far afield here, maybe a little bit of that perspective would help us with the way we invest the rest of our lives. Because we're investing in the way things are going to be, if we have wisdom, not in the way things are. Father, I thank you for this chapter, Lord. And Father, it's, it's, it's got a lot in it, Father. There's whole many questions that come out of this chapter. But I pray that as, as we continue, even through the week, to go back and read it again and distill it, Father, what we would see is this central truth. Father, there's so many things we can get stuck on here. Um, but I really pray, Father, as we move through this chapter, we'll get that essential truth, Lord, that this world that we're so comfortable in, Father, everything we know of life, we have derived from this world. And yet your word makes it clear this world is passing away. And Father, we know from what we find elsewhere in your word that they will come when this world won't exist at all. Father, so I pray you'd give us wisdom to invest the whole of our lives, every resource, every relationship, Father, with wisdom. And Father, we need your help to do that. That calls for a wisdom we don't have, so we lean upon your spirit, we lean upon your word, Lord. We lean upon one another. In Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.